Welcome to Making Waves, the podcast for curious business leaders brought to you by Wavelength. Our specialism is bringing the outside world in. And over the last 14 years, we have taken thousands of leaders physically and digitally inside the boardrooms and shop floors of some of the world's most admired and progressive organizations in Silicon Valley, China, India, and throughout Europe, providing them with world-class external inspiration, education, and provocation. Alibaba, Apple, Southwest Airlines, Lego, Netflix, Pret-a-Manger, Four Seasons, Nike, and India's legendary Aravind iCare system are amongst our clients, hosts, and partners. I'm Adrian Simpson, co-founder and chief connector of Wavelength, and in this episode, the focus is on leadership, purpose, and the future of work. And joining me today is Tim Munden, former chief learning officer of Unilever. Coming up in today's podcast... Human beings are meaning-driven creatures. We, we look for meaning, we seek meaning. If we don't have meaning, our well-being struggles. There is this beautiful kind of set of beliefs that sometimes people talk about in Unilever. You know, purpose-driven companies last, um, brands with purpose grow, and people with purpose thrive. Focusing on purpose focuses you on who you are serving. And I think we have a choice as business leaders, as organizational leaders. Are we gonna work with human being and human nature we're going to try and work against it we're leading from role and position and authority and power we're leading from influence and collaboration and network and that exposes your inner game how in all the confusion of the world around us the disruption the uncertainty how do you manage yourself vulnerability is one of the biggest changes in leadership the business benefit of leadership vulnerability is psychological safety. The future of work will be deeply, deeply human. Yes, it's going to be tech-enabled, but it's about the human being still. Between 2016 and 2021, Tim was responsible for learning and development for Unilever globally and was also responsible for well-being. In this role, his focus was on building the leaders and teams needed for a purpose-driven business, developing the skills and capabilities for a digital and disrupted world, and enabling people in Unilever to have the well-being needed for happiness and high performance. His assignments with Unilever, which he joined in 1993, took him to the Netherlands, Belgium, the USA and the UK. Before becoming Chief Learning Officer, he was Vice President of HR for Unilever, UK and Ireland. Since leaving Unilever in a full-time capacity at the beginning of the year, Tim still continues as an advisor and works with a multitude of private sector and charitable organizations to help their leaders make a positive difference in the world. So Tim, welcome. Thank you very much. Great to be with you. Thank you. So Tim, I know um, one of the things that you're very passionate about is the power of purpose. Um, And I'd really love just to kick off with what is your personal purpose in life right now? Yes, my purpose is to nurture deeply human possibility. Um, So for me, that really expresses what I really, really care about, that Um, And what comes through in all my work that we give human beings in communities and companies the chance to express what they're really about. Um, That's what motivates my work. I actually I first came across purpose when I was 22. Um, I just left the army. Uh, I got injured and wasn't able to continue. And I met someone who changed my life with two questions. He asked me, what do you want to learn about and what do you really love? And I remember thinking those are brilliant questions. That was my first touch of purpose. I remember thinking, I love human beings. In the end, I'm motivated by wanting to help people be the best, be all that they can. And I want to learn about how we can create communities and companies to do that. So my purpose has been the same for the last 30 years. Slightly different words, shows up in different ways, but for me, that's what it's about. Fantastic. I love that. You know, I get a sense that you love to celebrate the human spirit. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the end, that's why we do most of what we do. You know, companies are there to delight. Communities are there to serve human beings. And, and at their best, at our best, we are capable of utter wonder. You know, the creativity, the, the charity, the service, the inventiveness. I mean, it's just amazing. And I think we get used to maybe with the news in the world being slightly kind of depressing, as it is often, we take that into being pessimistic about humanity and the human race, and I see no cause for that. There's always cause for utter optimism because human beings have such potential. And I think my work and my passion is about that. How do we help that be expressed? I love it. I mean, I I had the privilege uh, a couple of weeks back to take a group of clients to America, and we spent... uh, a day and a half, um, so we had 20 clients from all around the world, different industries, different sectors, and we spent a day and a half at Southwest Airlines and Ritz-Carlton hotels looking at, you know, and those two brands put a compulsive, obsessive, relentless focus of people mm-hmm. at the heart of their businesses, you know, and one's in a low-cost, high-volume airline business and one's in a low-volume, high-quality, high-cost, uh, you know, hospitality business, but to see that potential, you know, to see the, 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 the hearts and minds of thousands of employees, in Ritz-Carlton's case, all around the world, you know, animated and live, enlivened and Southwest, you know, they've always talked about this philosophy of, you know, people, if put people at the center of your business, there's a really good chance that those people then will deliver positively outrageous service. And if you put people at the side giving great service, they'll make a profit. You Absolutely. know, it sounds like there's tremendous alignment between their thinking and yours. Totally. I mean, that human beings are the only way anything gets done. Mm. You know, and even in the age of technology, which we'll talk about, it's still the human beings who are making that technology and getting it to, to meet the need it is. Human yeah. beings are the only thing that really moves anything. So yeah. I love the, the examples you give. If we can inspire, care, um, challenge, stretch the human beings in our organizations, then we'll get um, the result that we want. But if you treat human beings as cogs in machines, that's that's what you're gonna get. Um, I think that's the first rule of leadership, is how you treat people is what result you're gonna end up serving the people your organization is there to serve. Yeah, and I, I totally, it was funny, if it was a former Southwest board director, actually, I spoke to him years back, and he was on this point because you know, at wavelength, we try and take leaders, you know, inside different businesses around the world, and to speak to really articulate leaders like yourself to provide the clients with inspiration, education, sort of provocation. But sometimes clients say, "Well, you know, that that wouldn't they, they, that's an airline. How would it apply to me? That's a hotel business apply to me." And he said, "Fundamentally, we're all in the same business. We're in the same business of trying to in, engage and enliven the human spirit." Right, none of us employs aliens, right? right? And it's a really fundamental point of what you can learn about how other businesses and how other leaders go about that. I mean, you know, just to do you know, to get an example, you know, we literally turned up at Southwest the other day. It, it was the, the first minute of the first day of the orientation of 400 brand new air stewardesses, ramp agents, what have you. And we walked into the building and we were taken around the back and then we were taken to line a red carpet. Yeah. And as literally these hundreds of employees filed in for their first minute of their first day, there was a red carpet. Alongside it was hundreds of Southwest Airlines employees whooping, hollering, sounding klaxons, signs. You know, and these new hires literally had their cameras out, they were filming it, and you're getting significant emotional engagement from minute one day one was the principle that you know you wouldn't execute that and do it at Unilever it wouldn't be culturally appropriate but that was just the 
for the group, it was like people were going, oh my God, I don't think about it. I don't think about how to do, so you know. Here's one of the big problems of, of challenges of leadership is leadership is all about human beings. Yeah. And yet, how many leadership programs, how much leadership education starts with what is a human being? It's like we think, oh, that's in the philosophical, the spiritual, or the psychological. But actually, if you don't start with what is a human being, how do you know how to lead? We lead in certain ways because that's what human beings need. We lead, we, no, organizations need purpose because human beings are purposeful. Create a purposeful organization, you will get the best out of people and you will create a result that's good for the world and your, and your clients and customers. And I, I've, it was actually funny, last week I was working with a really great old friend and collaborator. We're working in a wonderful company, 50 factory directors. And we started with that question. So what's challenging you? My challenge at the moment is people and change and uncertainty is a really common theme. Okay, so why is change and uncertainty difficulty difficult? Well, because people struggle with it. And how do we get all you know, people to change and change together, da, da, da. It's the challenge is people. Mm. So what is a human being? We ask them the question. You start to work on it. And actually, I think you can, from that question, what is a human being, you quickly get to what do human beings need, and then you get into, okay, how do we now lead for the 21st century? Mm. Understanding what people need and what people have to give. Mm. But it's that, that's the question mm. you've got to begin with. Absolutely. Now, what is a human being? What do they need? What do they have to give? And you mentioned purposeful. Right, so we touched upon your personal purpose. Um, and I know at Unilever, you did a lot of work on this. Um, uh, you know, you, in, in an extremely you know, purpose-driven organization. Could you just expand upon why do you think it's so important for, you know, for businesses and for brands to, to essentially be purpose-led? Mm. So there's, there's several answers to that. So, so one place to start picking up on what we've just been talking about is human beings are meaning-driven um, creatures, we we look for meaning, we seek meaning. If we don't have meaning, our well-being struggles. So one place to begin with why purpose is because human beings are purposeful. The people in your organisation are purposeful. They want meaning, and the people who are being served want meaning. One place to start. Second place to start: <clears throat> organisations that are purpose-driven um, will last longer. Um, they will sell more. And their people will be more engaged and higher performing. And that's at the heart of, of Unilever's approach. So Unilever has this amazing purpose of making sustainable living commonplace. Yeah. It's been a constant now for well over a decade. And it helps them to shape strategy and strategic decisions. And then there is this beautiful kind of set of beliefs that sometimes people talk about in Unilever. You know, purpose-driven companies last um, brands with purpose grow and people with purpose thrive. And I think those, that is nice. basically the way of thinking about it. We want companies to endure. Yeah. Um, all of us who've, who've been leaders in, in companies or been part of a community of a company that we've loved want it to endure. Yeah. So set it on something that is long-lasting. Strategies come and go. Um, products and services come and go. Ways of doing business are changing massively. Purpose lasts. Yeah. And I think so, so I think it helps you to put your company on something solid to navigate by in disrupted times. It gives your people something really uh, emotive to orientate around, to tune into, um, and to be inspired by. Um, and it gives you a really clear message to your customers about what you stand for. And that, I think, is the key thing. Focusing on purpose focuses you on who you are serving. Mm. Mm. 
Um, and maybe that's one of the most powerful things. So in the organization, we're serving our people, our employees, mm. and the wider community of people who touch us. In our brands and services, we're servicing, you know, we're serving clients and customers and trying to meet their needs. And in wider society, we're serving the needs of, of wider society, the environment and the people around us, the community around us. So what, what makes purpose powerful is it orientates you to who you're serving. And by doing that, it creates um, a powerful impact, commercial and social, for the world around us. And you mentioned, you touched upon that. So, you know, some people would view purpose as still fluffy, right? It's, it's, it's just conceptual. You know, you're never going to get my shareholders to buy into the power of purpose. You give me, give me the hard metrics, right? Do you have any evidence from the Unilever days or beyond that actually putting, you mentioned earlier about, you know, you sell more as brands. Do you have any evidence that actually putting purpose at the heart of a business and brands has direct commercial output. Absolutely. So for, you know, in Unilever, the brands that were, you know, particularly purposeful, that had a really clear mission that touched the consumer that was embedded in that brand, they grew faster. Mm. Um, so Unilever has, has that data and has talked about it publicly. I'm not showing anything that isn't already out there. And we have really strong data about the impact of purpose on individuals. Right. So Unilever created a one-day workshop um, for in, people in Unilever to discover their own purpose, right. to come to a sentence like mine. So mine is to nurture deeply human possibility. People have all kinds of different sentences. And the point of that was, if we want to create a purposeful business, we have to actively encourage people to bring their purpose to work, whatever that purpose is. 56,000 people did that workshop. 56,000 people. Wow. Now, the reason we could do that was because we started to run those workshops ourselves. We trained trainers um, to run it ourselves. We trained small group facilitators. It became a part of what our community does for itself. Unilever did randomized controlled trials on that. A group of people who did go, a group of people who didn't go, not self-selecting. And the data's incredible. You know, the people who have been through that one-day workshop a 49% um, report, 49% higher intrinsic motivation. They are over 30% more satisfied with their jobs. They are 27% uh, more satisfied with their lives. It's a one-day workshop. Other benefits, they are more likely to, 76% more likely to go the extra mile. They are more likely to um, talk to their boss about challenges with prioritization. So uh, that's a one-day workshop. So we no, I think we, we have really good data um, to suggest that organisations that help individuals connect to their purpose will get a benefit. Fantastic. As well as the individuals getting a benefit. I'm fascinated by this because I think one of the you know key challenges I encounter, you know, is I, I'm very privileged. I spend sometimes weeks uh, in the presence of very senior business leaders. Sometimes it's a couple of days. Sometimes it's just you know a, a few hours. But so many of them struggle with their with their personal purpose, and um, I just love to dig a bit dig a little bit deeper. So these one day workshops, right? Take me through it, right? What what, what you you design them yourselves? What happened? What's the questions? Take take me inside one of these workshops. Help people understand what did you do? So because they are incredible outputs. Yeah, absolutely. So so there are lots of different ways of getting to purpose yeah. and and helping a person find their purpose. Um, so along the years, I've used those questions that I referred to earlier. What do you love? What do you want to learn about? I've used a kind of career coaching approach. Tell me about moments that you've been most fulfilled. Why, 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 why? You, you can go different ways. <clears throat> the approach that these workshops take is getting people to share experiences that they've had 
that have been particularly important to them. An experience in which they've really struggled um, and probably been transformed by overcoming that. Uh, we asked them to talk about experiences they've had of them being at their very, very best. We asked them to reflect on childhood and experiences they've had. We asked them to reflect on values. We get them to do that in small groups um, with a facilitator in that group who've done, who's been through the process before. Um, and throughout that, there's a sharing of experience. There's a kind of feeding back of, well, when Adrian told me that story, what I heard you describing, Adrian, was this, what the kind of characteristics that came across were these. Um, and so what you get is a chance for a person to really get reflected back um, what some of their characteristics, their key experiences and over the course of that day, they then start to work out what, how would you describe in a sentence some of the key elements that make up your purpose. Okay. And about 80%, 85% of people, I think, get to the end of that day and have a sentence. Hmm. Uh, <clears throat> I've been using it outside of Unilever now for the last six months with other companies, and it works just as well. It's, it really does, it transports, because human beings are fundamentally yeah. purposeful. Um, and I think we have a choice as business leaders, as organisational leaders. Are we going to work with the human being and human nature? Or are we going to try and work against it? Yeah. And I think business, industry, from Taylorism onwards, yeah. try to make human beings into convenient units of production. Yeah. Um, and human beings are not units of production. Um, more glorious, more capable, more multidimensional than that. And you might as well accept it and get the benefit of that. I love it. I love it. And you said then that you've 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 so you've taken that approach to helping people find their purpose outside of Unilever, working with other companies, and you're getting the same sort of results. So it, this just wasn't a Unilever centric uh, uh, process. This this is something you believe other companies could adapt. Absolutely. And and Unilever's are generously trying to make it available to other organisations. Uh-huh. Um, and I've and I've. So I've been working in, in not-for-profit contexts using kind of similar approaches. I've, I've worked for years in youth leadership using a kind of, you know, the, the what do you love, what do you want to learn about context, and it, it, they all work. You've got to do it skillfully. You've got to create a safe space. You've got to, uh, and that really matters. You've got to create a space for people to be willing to share. Um, I think it has to be done with the good of the human beings involved at the core, otherwise it can feel a bit manipulative. Um, there's a slight danger if, if companies are kind of do it to try and get a kind of engage quick engagement hit. That's going to backfire. But done done skillfully, done responsibly, done carefully, it's it it works because human beings are purposeful. So Tim, one of the questions that arises, I suppose, the process of putting people through a purpose workshops is what happens if somebody gets to the end of a one day workshop on purpose and they find there's a misalignment between their own personal purpose and perhaps the organization they work for. I know at Unilever, your purpose is very clear. It was about sustainability. But what, what happens in that scenario? So it's a really interesting and, and a powerful question because, of course, that can happen. People don't feel aligned. And I think when, you know, there's a discussion at the moment, particularly in the US, about the great resignation. And is that about people finding other things important, wanting to do them? Um, so my answer to that often is, yes, of course that happens. But that happens anyway. Um, we know that when you ask people in employee surveys, do you intend to, or are you actively thinking about leaving this company, that a significant proportion do. So people are constantly reflecting on that. Um, I think what putting purpose deeply into your organisation does is far outweighs any of the problems that might appear to create. Because in fact, all it's doing is getting that clear and out in the open. 
Um, hopefully, and I've seen this time after time, where that what a person comes out of their purpose workshop in Unilever, they then were encouraged to create a future fit plan, a plan that basically based on their purpose, what experiences do they want to have? In order to have those experiences, what skills do you want to build? What leadership behaviors do you need? And what well-being do you need? So I think the, the skill of it in an organizational context is how you not just help people find their purpose, but then actively build the skills to go and do the things that that purpose inspires them to do. What you're then doing, so maybe a few people will go, you know what, I actually want either at some point or soon to go and do something different. But most people will actually be thinking, great, I can express that purpose here and therefore I want to learn these skills. So you actually use it to fuel people's growth. Fantastic. And, and I think that's the key thing. We are facing into the biggest change in skills in organisational ways of working that the world has seen since the Industrial Revolution. How are we going to help people to learn those new skills? How are we going to motivate them to, re to really embrace that coming future? Not by making them scared. Not by saying, if you don't, you're going to not have jobs. People are never motivated very effectively by fear, not to take positive action. But purpose really does motivate. So I think you do get people who, when an organisation becomes purposeful, think, oh, that's not for me. Um, but in that case, great. There will be plenty of people who do want your purpose. And the optimum performance comes from attracting people into your organisation who really have passion for it. So there should be no concern about the downside of people leaving because those people would go anyway. So a lot of the work you're describing around the public people found their purpose um, feeds into something I heard Alan Jope talk about. We had the pleasure of hosting Alan Jope uh, at a Wave-led Inspire session in, last year. And he talked about a belief that as a, you can't be an effective leader until you know you're in a game. And then when you know you're in a game, then you can do your outer game. Um, could you expand upon that, that, that notion of understanding you're in a game and perhaps even beyond purpose? What does, what does that mean for leaders? So about five or six years ago, we did some thinking um, in Unilever about what 21st century leadership looks like. We've known for years, research study after research study, that effective leadership is situational. Depends on the environment you're in, the people you're in, the kind of problems and challenges you're facing. And those have shifted significantly over the last few years. Um, organizations becoming much more fluid, much less structured, has an impact on leaders. You're no longer leading from role and position and authority and power. You're leading from influence and collaboration and network. And that exposes your inner game. When you can't lead from power, you lead from those things that come from within you. Um, the nature of people in workplaces, they want meaningful work. They want to grow. They'll leave organisations if they're not getting that kind of work. So as a leader, as a manager, our job is not just to get the work done. It's to make sure we get the work done by giving people meaningful work that grows them or they'll, they'll leave. Um, people want a different kind of relationship with leaders. They don't want uh, a distant relationship with someone in the corner office whose doors shut most of the time. They want to have a relationship with a human being. So organisations are changing. Structure is moving away to network. People want relationships with human beings. They don't want to be told what to do by a manager. We're needing to empower people in organisations so we get speed of ag and agility. The job of leaders is changing. All of those things exposes more of who we are, mm. asks more of who we are, rather than just what we do. So the outer game is what we do, our skills, but the nature of 21st century leadership is exposes more of who we are as a person, 
my ability to have a purpose, to articulate my purpose, to inspire other people through their purpose. My ability, and so purpose is the, yeah, the foundation. foundation. Second piece we talk about um, is personal mastery, the ability to always bring your best self. How, in all the confusion of the world around us, the disruption, the uncertainty, how do you manage yourself? How do you keep your, manage your energy? How do you keep your presence? You now, there's research done that people are distracted 48% of the time. I'll say that again because half of them missed it. We're distracted 48% of the time. So how can you lead if you, can't, if you can't be present? And in this hybrid world, that's under more pressure than ever. So personal mastery includes that ability to be focused, to manage our mental space. Um, it's, it's about managing our energy. So that's a, the piece of personal mastery, bringing your best self. And the third piece we talk about is agility, personal agility. That ability to constantly learn new skills, to, to make a plan on Monday, change it on Wednesday because the world's changed and not to worry about it. That inner fluidity. That, I think, that, the inner game has always been important. Human beings work from the inside out. But it's more important in leadership than ever. Who we are is more important than ever and is the basis for all the stuff that we do. So the inner game, who we are, our being. The outer game, what we do. It sounds like to me what your the rally cry is around authenticity and vulnerability. I guess I mean maybe vulnerability is overstating it, but 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 I think you know, you're looking for you, you leaders need now to be more authentic and more accessible than ever before, and that requires they don't have all the answers right and requires perhaps a level of comfort with vulnerability that they wouldn't have had previously. I think you've put your finger, actually, Adrian, on one of the biggest changes of all in the last kind of 20, 30 years is about vulnerability. Mm. I think when I started my career, the leadership model was the person who showed up, always unruffled, mm. always had the answer, had never struggled, um, high achieving. And now you show up like that and people kind of go, you never struggled. You obviously haven't tried hard enough. Um, and, and, I, and actually, you're not trying difficult enough things. And frankly, I don't believe it anyway, and I'm not inspired by it. So absolutely, vulnerability is one of the biggest changes in leadership. And I think you, it's, it's what does vulnerability involve? It's not boundaryless sharing. It is thoughtful sharing of what the leader's experiencing, their own struggles, the things they've tried that haven't worked out, how they feel about things. What's the business benefit of that? For anyone listening who's thinking, oh my goodness, this is really getting a bit kind of woo-woo. The business benefit of leadership vulnerability is psychological safety. And, and we know from the wonderful research of Amy Evans and what that does. If you create that psychological safety and people feel safe to share their mistakes, that organization learns super fast, it performs highly. If people feel psychologically safe to share their creative, innovative suggestions, that organization will become leading edge and will change faster. There is a hard commercial benefit to leadership vulnerability. Um, but it is one of the biggest changes, I think, and, and it is absolutely part of that inner game. I love it. Absolutely love it. Uh, psychological safety, it's something which is talked about a great deal now, I think, within, within businesses. Not people quite sure people understand by it. And I think your articulation there of, of vulnerability, but vulnerability within boundaries is, is fantastic. 
it's taken me to a slightly um, sort of related space, which is um, we had the great pleasure last week of hosting both Alistair Campbell and another uh, former Unilever colleague of yours, Jeff MacDonald, on the topic of uh, mental health and resilience. Um, I know you've had your own um, challenges. We, we had a lovely lunch uh, uh, locally not, uh, only a month or so ago. You talked about your know, challenges with, I think you called it post-traumatic stress. Um, I just love you in, in, the, in the spirit of kind of like vulnerability and honesty within boundaries. Talk about what, what happened, what, 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 what caused that, how did it manifest itself, and what did you do as a leader of such seniority in Unilever to overcome it and perhaps encourage others to, to take their mental health very seriously? So, yeah, in my early 20s, um, I had a, a car accident um, in which the car went out of control at quite high speed was turning over breaking apart and um, I honestly thought I was literally just about to die um, as the car was trying to crumple I thought I was going to lose my head um, and um, actually what made the difference in the long term was in that moment I wasn't scared of death so much as I had this strange sense of, of shame that I hadn't fulfilled my potential um, I'd wasted my life I got out of the car and um, was alive and remarkably uninjured. And I basically said to myself, right, that was a pretty unpleasant experience. Um, I'm going to um, make sure that next time I die, I don't have any shame. Um, I'm going to make sure I fulfill my potential. And I've told that story for years and, and people would say, that's great, turning a terrible thing to good. There was some good in that, but actually I set up a really kind of painful emotional process because for the 20 something years after that I basically was trying to make sure that I didn't die with shame by achieving enough and um, that became a kind of a process um, that was got hardwired in, as part of this post-traumatic stress and over time I started to wake up more and more often during the night but it's worst five nights out of seven I would be awake um, having repeated nightmares about dying. Um, and I, and I, it's remarkably, I now tell the story and think, how did you not work out what was going on? Um, but, you, you know, I just thought I was a bit of a funny fella and that's kind of how I was. And my emotions were, were becoming more and more volatile and, um, you know, I would, I would be working hard <clears throat> underneath the surface trying to make sure I was successful so I didn't die with shame. And... When things didn't work out um, as I wanted them to be, I felt they should be, I became more and more volatile. Uh, my moods were kind of, yeah, just swinging, I suppose. And and, um, and it got kind of to the point where in one job, I almost, I couldn't feel success anymore. I remember sitting down with my two brilliant managers, my HR leader and, and the business leader. Um, I partnered and, and both of them saying, you're doing really well. I couldn't feel it. I was numb. Mm. And um, one day, my boss said to me, look, you, you know, you're brilliant, Tim. You, you know, you say you're going to do something, it always gets done. I, I never have to worry. But it's just one thing. You know, your emotions really are volatile. And around the same time, I, I was doing work on mental health and, and spending time with people who had post-traumatic stress and started to hear them talk about it and think, oh, that's, that, that sounds like someone I know. And, and then I finally had a moment where I watched, was watching a film with my wife and daughter and the car turned over in the film and I ran out of the room and burst into tears and I thought, okay, that's it, I've, I've got to deal with this now. 
And um, so I then started the journey of trying to find help, which is ridiculously difficult. It was, I mean, this is five years ago now. I went to my GP and I did a classic email thing. I went in for one thing and at the end of it said to him, and just, by the way, doc, um, I get really bad nightmares. And he looked at me and he went, what are you? And, and you know, your listeners can't see this. I'm a fairly robust looking individual. Um, and, um, and, and he laughed and I kind of went, oh yeah, no, no don't worry about it. And, um, and I, I, I really struggled to find good help. And then thankfully, the blessing of having you know a good employer and private medical insurance, I basically rang up a, a consultant who a psychologist who said she specialised in post traumatic stress, and I I hit the jackpot. She's been brilliant, um, and I spent a lot of years working on it, um, really working working on it, and and several goes at it um, because it had got very hardwired into me and how I operated. And Unilever was was absolutely amazing. I think the you know the power of of organisations to support you is 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 critical. Um, and actually, that's how I came to this to understanding the power of vulnerabilities. A few years after starting this work, um, I was asked to make a film about it by the Royal Foundation's Heads Together campaign that we've been working with at Unilever. And I found myself on the night before World Mental Health Day about to post this film on my LinkedIn feed. That's when I realised vulnerability mm. and what it is. Yeah, what a you moment. Because that, that question, <laughs> that, having put it out there, yeah. I, that would never go away. Yeah. You know, And um, what happened actually really blew me away because you know, thousands of people have watched this film. I don't know thousands of people. Uh, I've discovered actually a couple of weeks ago one company's using it in their mental health training. Um, and um, someone just came up to me at a conference and said, oh, I've seen your film. Our company shows it. But, and I discovered the power of vulnerability. Someone with a fancy job title, chief learning officer in a company saying, I've struggled. And, and it was exactly what I've said. People want, need to hear that. And, and that's when I realised. And it helped me to show up differently. And I think you hear this when you listen to Jeff as well. Yeah. You know, having taken the step of saying, here I am, um, you can't ever go back and you show up as yourself. And that's a powerful thing. I'm very blessed. I'm, I think, largely healed. And, and um, But yeah, it's been a journey. It sounds like it. I can hear it in your voice. There's still emotion there, which is which is great. But it's, it's part of vulnerability. You know, it's like it's it's a big part of big, big, big part of it. I mean, just in terms of you know, I I think one of the great things Jeff McDonald talks about is you know is energy, right? Managing energy and 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 you know almost a rallying cry as to the most important thing that organisations have actually is the energy of their people, right? Because if your people have got energy and your organization has energy, you can shoot for the stars. And if it doesn't, you don't. And why don't organizations measure energy, right? In a way which it's a really interesting provocation in the way that we do other, uh, other, other things. What do you do now to, to, or even towards the tail end of your, because now obviously you're living more of a, a portfolio uh, uh, career, but when you were t- towards the tail end, perhaps the last few years at your Unilever job and you're still... You know, you still these these things. You just have to manage your mental health. What were you doing to make sure you you're top of your game, that you're managing your energy? Any practical top tips for people to think around? Absolutely. Look, and I actually work as hard now as in my hybrid life as I did in Unilever. Um, I think um, so. I think a few things. One is 
purpose. Make sure that what you're doing really tunes into what you deeply love and want to learn about. Mm. Um, and make as few compromises as you can. Um, and make sure that you're constantly checking in on that. So number one, purpose. Mm. Because purpose is that core of energy and motivation. Second thing is I meditate every day. Um, and that's been a really key part of the journey. So taking time out every morning um, for something that, you know, the corporate bit of your brain screams, it's unproductive. It's deeply productive of energy, of well-being. And, and in all the leadership programs I run, I introduce people to breathing techniques. Um, and again, it's, it's about understanding who we are as human beings. As human beings, our brains scan for threat 10 times a second. We are brilliantly set up to stay alive um, and to manage danger. The problem is that many of the things that challenge us now and that trigger that response aren't physical threats. They are emotional threats. They're things that feel dangerous and cause a stress response. But actually, you know, fight and flight's not going to work. So how do you work with that system? And breathing and breathing techniques help to calm down that limbic system, activate the frontal lobes, which is where we can solve problems from. So understanding a bit about how we're made up. So breathing, I use breathing exercises myself a lot in my leadership programs alongside purpose. I teach them. So I think that is really, really important. Um, so meditation, mindfulness, breathing, as well as purpose. Um, and then I think just practicing, one of the reasons I think those things work is because of awareness. They, they're all about awareness. Yeah, absolutely. Monitoring who, how you're doing. Mm. Um, really honestly keeping an eye on, on how you are. Mm -hmm. um, you know, our great friend Rob Stevenson in the mental health world um, has this thing called the form score. Mm -hmm. You know, rate yourself one to ten. How are you today? Mm -hmm. um, and and constantly kind of just keeping a watchful eye on it. Um, and I think that's a habit for everyone. You know, just to just to notice, give it a number. Um, today, how are you? How were you yesterday? Um, and just tracking that just helps you to get a sharpened sense and of of how you're doing and what that allows you to do is to start to notice when things are coming in that might be starting to uh, undermine your positivity and your energy. And then you can act early. Um, and I think that's one of the gifts that this whole journey's given me is a deep understanding of what drives me and what some of those triggers are so I can act early. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm assuming as well, you haven't said it, but I'm assuming sleep, exercise, diet also feed into, the, into also the kind of... Sleep diet. particularly, yes. You know, I mean, the, the, what sleep does to us is just unbelievable. Yeah. Um, you know, if, even if it enhances learning. You know, you will have better recall after you've slept on things. I mean, it is, it is just remarkable. And we are in a, in, of all the things you mentioned, sleep is one of the ones we know we're in a deficit on. You know, people are undersleeping. Um, so keeping phones and digital devices out of bedrooms so you, not, you don't go to bed having just checked your email. Don't get up and check the email. Um, so those things also really absolutely matter. Brilliant, brilliant. I'm uh, just towards, towards the end of our time together. I'd just like to sort of talk a little bit about the, the, the you touched on a little bit, but kind of the, the so is the future of work. I, I, I say, and I I do this ten days after coming from Silicon Valley, where we spent several very provocative hours uh, talking about this topic. We um, we 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 did a meeting in the metaverse uh, using Oculus Quest headsets. We 
we we we had we had a, uh, an advocate who was passionate about the future was remote and making a very robust case why the future organization should be remote only because remote is better for diversity it's better for inclusion it equals out opportunity rather than wealth it is brilliant for anybody with a a disability or a, you know gender diversity for working mums. I mean, she made a really robust case as to why the future was, was another uh, former chief people officer from from LinkedIn, Steve Cadigan, was more nuanced perhaps to saying. But I just I would love your view, and you know, and, and we mentioned it earlier in the context. You know, we're in the context of the Great Resignation, right? Clients are talking about they can't attract enough talent. Talents leaving them at unprecedented levels. There's a scarcity of skills. You know, I think I think you know, and and. There seems to be mounting evidence actually also that the whole, I was reading a fascinating piece in Fast Company last week that talks about the 3-2 uh, the hybrid model um, as, as the greatest disaster in, in organizational design for, for years. And that actually the evidence is mounting that this dictating that people go back to the office three days or two days just isn't working. And in fact, if no one wins, and I believe even Apple, 76% of the people there, 76% of the people at Apple are saying they're dissatisfied with this, with these arrangements. So just would love your, in the context of all that, love your views on the, the future of work. Yeah, so so you won't be surprised about what I'm just going to say, I think. So this, picking the examples you used, you know, talking about hybrid and remote. And, and so why is remote good? Because of the people. Why do we need to upskill? Because we need people. The, the future of work will be deeply, deeply human. Yes, it's going to be tech-enabled, but it's about the human being still. And I think there's a slight danger that we, we believe that the future is going to be about technology, but actually it's all about technology in the service of people, in the service of customers, in the service of society. And what dictates whether that tech is working or not, whether it's working for human beings. So I actually think, and, and, and technology will take away a lot of work that doesn't need to be done by people, leaving the creative things for human beings, and it will create lots of new work for people. So actually the future of work will be human. And so I think it's even more important than ever that in organisations we focus on the deeply human. Um, and I think the reason why remote working isn't always working is because, for example, culture and team spirit gets eroded because it's not consciously being built. And people need that. Um, and it, or it doesn't work because people are being ordered to behave in certain ways in an era where people are less and less willing to be imposed on. So I think the future of work is about deep, deepening and deepening the humanity with which and through which we work. And it's not something we can take for granted. The reason why the skilling thing I think is deeply scary is because unless we equip people with the skills they need in the future, people will be leaving occupations that are no longer needed, but they will not be moving into areas where they are needed. And that's where we start to create terrible social pollution that has generation-long implications. Now, those of us of a certain age can remember the deindustrialization of countries like the UK in the 1980s. And new jobs were being created, but they weren't being created for the people who were losing their jobs in industry. Mm. And that had generational societal impact. Mm. That's what we have to prevent. Mm. So I think the future is very bright will be deeply human, but we have to keep an eye on how we really take care of people in that transition. Absolutely. I sort of just go back on one thing that you said, which was interesting about people not wanting to be ordered as much as they are. And I, and it, I just I feel this 
whole conversation around hybrid virtual is so real right now. So what I'm reading and hearing is that actually the companies that are ordering people back for two days a week or three days a week are getting quite a pushback from employees because employees in the last couple of years have been used to freedom and they've had ultimate freedom from home to frankly, you know, start their day when they want to start, maybe not even be boundary enough, but a lot of people have enjoyed that freedom. They've enjoyed the freedom it's given them to exercise better, to perhaps eat better, to sleep better, to spend time with their families. And now they're being told you have to be back in the office three days a week. You know, it's a classic, I think, twat, isn't it? Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Um, and that has some real implications. I know, I know, for example, for working mums, you know, try to finding childcare that works two days a week, right? You know, because if you've got a, you know, if you've, if you've got a young person in your house, it was either full time was easy. Uh, you could outsource your, you know, get it, not outsource, but get get uh, childcare five days a week in a nursery, um, or you might have to get a, a childminder. If you're now being told you can be at home Monday, Tuesday, Monday, Friday, but Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you're in an office. You try finding childcare that works like that. I just would. What's but so? I'm sort of interested in kind of your views on that that challenge right now, which is, you know, deeply human could be actually give people the choice to work where they want, how they want, when they want, be it in the office five days a week if that works for them, be it if they want to come in the office two days a week, that, that works for them great. But if they want to be, frankly, virtually fully remote, but coming in for key cultural touch points and moments, that's fine. What's your sort of view on that, that challenge where so many companies now are almost dictating this, you must come in two days or three days, given the sort of... Con- against this ordering people and dictating to people it's such a nuanced conversation i was with a company this week um as i mentioned earlier 50 plant directors in a room um and of course as soon as there's a conversation about working from home they're going to go well actually we and our teams have not been working from home at any point in this no uh we've been keeping the factories running keeping society supplied and so kind of, you know, let's remember the reality for many is you can't work from home. Um, and, and so, and I think that's worth saying because otherwise we, we kind of go into a space where this is an everybody thing and it's not. Of course. Yeah. So there's a whole sectors of the working of the population who still have to go in, had to go in. And, and I think we need to honour and, and kind of respect that. Then where there's more kind of possibility, it's interesting. I've worked with a company recently who basically went, we're, we're going really open and leaving people to work at home. If you do that, you then have to manage the consequences. I think this is part of what the issue is, is if you want people to come in, give them really good reasons to come in, give, make it meaningful. And if, they're, um, if you're being you know, really open to people just working largely from home, how do you make that work? Yeah. And, and you've got to follow through and be consequential. Yeah. If you're allowing people to work at home uh, most of the time, what are the things that people really need to come together for? Uh, and how do you make those things really brilliantly facilitated and work well? How do you, how do you create the moments to build culture and cohesion? Um, and we know that can work well. There's many of us been running global teams for years who hardly ever got together face-to-face. We know that can work. Um, so I think it's then a, it's about being consequential, but also engaging people in the change. Yeah. I don't think we are anymore in a place where people are willing to have change imposed on them. Mm. 
Um, and so I think it's about the skill with which you get into that conversation with people. It's Of course it's okay in the end to say, look, we believe we need you for these things. But you've got to make the case for that. It's got to be a real case. And when it's well made, people go, okay, I get that. Yeah, absolutely. So absolutely. I, th I think it's about managing consequences of your decisions, understanding there are different ways that work for different businesses and different types of, of organisation, um, but engaging people in it. I think the consequences of decisions is, is really interesting. I think I mentioned earlier when we were in Silicon Valley, we had a fantastic session where we called Barbie Brewer, who was the chief people officer of a company with 5,000 people in 55 countries and never had an office ever. And she's a real sort of surprisingly sort of thoughtly ran, ran sort of remote working. And one of the things she said, which really resonated with the group, she said, where if you have some of your workforce remote, you, you, should, you have to do it in a remote world is you have to make everything that was uh, informal in the physical environment has to become formal in a remote environment. So she gave two great examples. One was on a Monday morning, they would have a water cooler conversation where for half an hour, you would dial in from wherever you are in the world, work for your time zone. And the only thing you talked about is what you did at the weekend, yeah. right? When you, you, were, you were encouraged to get photographs of the dogs and the kids and what party you went to, because that's the kind of conversation you had at the water cooler. And then secondly, she was using technology quite cleverly because you were saying, Arguably, and I think this is arguably, you can become even more siloed in a remote world because you don't bump into anybody. Although her argument was you kept on bumping into the same people in the head office anyway because you were on the same floor with the same teams. Yeah. But so they had technology where literally they could go, right, they would just look at technology with Marty, your emails, your phone, you know, because they go, well, Tim, well, you haven't spoken to somebody in this division for three months. And they would just put a call in. Literally, the software would go, Tim, you're going to have a conversation with somebody in XY division for this lad there just to, just to check in because we know you haven't spoken to them just to build connectivity, which I thought was, was, was super, super interesting. Um, I think, there's, there's, so give me another example. You and I of a certain age probably did work experience at some point. Yes. Yeah, we trotted along to a building. Yeah. And we were there for a week or two. Yeah. Um, and uh, we were given photocopying and someone kept an eye out for us and we kind of bimbled around and, and somehow got a good... How do you do work experience in a virtual world? You know, and, and you so you can do it, but you've got to think through how to do it. And if we don't manage it, yeah. that's going to be a big issue for trying to get young people into workplaces. Yeah. So... I think it's about managing consequences, isn't it? Let's think it, you've got to think through what might the issues be. And then, and that's what, and of course, who's better to think it through than the people involved? Yeah, absolutely. Tim, we've covered a huge amount of ground the last hour together. Uh, uh, I'm just conscious, is there anything we haven't spoken about? Anything four of mine that you would just like to, to throw into the mix as we uh, leave, as we draw to our podcast to the conclusion? Well, I, I think, I mean, I, not, not something we haven't talked about. I think this, this 21st century as the age of humanity and of human beings um, and, and to stop trying to make human beings fit an idea of what we think a company and an organisation should look like and rather shape organisations and communities around human beings. I think there's a, that's a really big shift. And, and I think what's exciting about it is if we get that right, it unlocks commercial opportunity yeah. because we will be better at innovation and creativity and meeting needs in markets. And it'll be a much better organization to work in. Um, I think that's a big idea, but there's some, I, I often find somehow we've been so programmed to think that, you know, if work isn't hurting, we're not doing it right. Yeah. Yeah. That we've got to, re you know, we really have to reframe that. The future of work is deeply human. Brilliant. It's a great note to, to end on. I absolutely cannot agree with you more. Tim, thank you so much indeed for your time. Thank you.
Thank you so much for tuning into today's Making Waves podcast. If you enjoyed it, please check out some of our other podcasts, such as Fred Reed, the former founding CEO of Virgin America, president of Lufthansa, president of Delta Airlines, who also worked five years with Brian Chesky at Airbnb and also with Larry Page in his private company, Kitty Hawk. So that incredible experience has gave him some amazing stories to share on lessons in leadership. Also, an amazing podcast last year with Elizabeth Bryant, vice president of people at the legendary Southwest Airlines that really gets into their reputation for excellence around people, culture and service. All our podcasts are available on the usual platforms, so please check them out and stay curious.